0: If you struggle with anxiety and you've learned a lot of tools or strategies that are supposed to help you manage your anxiety, but when you use them, they don't work as well as you think they're supposed to, today's episode is for you. As a therapist, the most common reason I see people struggle to manage their anxiety effectively is because they haven't been taught how to know which tools to use for which types of anxiety. In fact, most of the people I work with don't even know there are different types of anxiety other than very general definitions like anxiety versus social anxiety versus panic attacks versus phobias. There are actually four different forms, at least in my opinion, this is my model, that your anxiety can take. And each form requires a different subset of anxiety management tools in order to be effectively treated or contained. My goal for today's episode is to teach you how to identify these four subtypes of anxiety and then make sure you know how to match up each subtype with each custom set of coping skills so that you know exactly what to do no matter what form your anxiety decides to take on any given day. Before we get into that, I just wanna take a quick second to introduce myself. My name's Dr. Scott. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist. I'm the owner of the North Star Psychological Center, and I'm the author of the book, For When Everything is Burning. My passion is helping people who are really, really stuck with their mental health. I am usually like the fourth or fifth or sixth therapist somebody sees, and I'm, I specialize in people who have not gotten better, or at least not gotten as better as they wanted to. With more standard treatment approaches, I like to really dig deep with people, get into the super fine details of things and figure out why are these things not working the way they're supposed to. And in the case of anxiety, as I said before, it's usually because they are not properly matching the skills to the type of anxiety. So let's start by defining those four subtypes of anxiety. Then I'll run through the skills that help the most with each subtype the first type of anxiety is narrative anxiety. Narrative anxiety is the type of anxiety that presents as thoughts or words or a conversation that you have with yourself in your own mind. So just to give you some examples, narrative anxiety would include things like, say you have a job interview coming up and you, f- you keep thinking to yourself, I'm going to make a fool out of myself. And it's almost like, it's almost like someone's sitting next to you saying those words to you right or maybe you're literally seeing those words in your mind as if you're reading them from a book or something like that Um, it's it's anxiety that can be expressed as a thought right and so it's anxiety that's also relatively easy to communicate to other people so if someone says why are you anxious well i have a job interview and i'm afraid that i'm going to make a fool out of myself and not know how to answer the questions correctly so anxiety that takes that form is what i call narrative anxiety the second type of anxiety is visual anxiety. and You can probably figure out what that is by the name. That's when you can't stop picturing something really bad happening, whether it's picturing something bad happening to you or somebody you love. Really common example of visual anxiety that people I work with often experience is um, travel. You know, if you're gonna be in a car or maybe flying on an airplane, and And you just can't stop picturing like a car accident or a plane crash or some other sort of catastrophized worst case scenario. And it's not that you're literally like hearing the idea in your head as like a dialogue. it's It's that you're seeing it and you're seeing it in your mind as like a picture or maybe even like a movie. And it's this loop that just keeps playing over and over and over again. The third type of anxiety is physical anxiety. And this is the anxiety that you really just feel intensely in your body. So sometimes when we're really anxious, we experience physiological sensations like racing heart, shortness of breath, sweating, shaking, dizziness, lightheadedness, muscle tension, numbness even, all kinds of things can happen to our bodies, nausea, Um, indigestion. These are all really common with anxiety. And sometimes we experience those physical symptoms of anxiety in the absence of the narrative or visual anxiety. A lot of times these all go like many times you'll experience every type of anxiety all at the same time to some degree. But you'll often find that one is primary, and sometimes you'll experience one completely in isolation from everything else. So sometimes you'll get these physical symptoms of anxiety, and you don't even know why. There's not like a specific thought or a specific thing you're picturing. You just get this tense, wound up, nervous, anxious, on edge feeling in your body. It's almost more physical than it is emotional, and you can't even necessarily articulate to another person why it's there, but it's there the fourth subtype of anxiety is what I call general anxiety. And this is just sort of a vague doomsday sense. So again, it's like, it's it's not that there's oh this specific thing is going to happen. And I'm really worried about that. Or I can't stop picturing this. Oh, I'm having like, I'm on the verge of a panic attack. It's just like this constant feeling of undefined impending doom. And if you haven't experienced it, that probably sounds really weird. Like, how, how can you be so anxious and not even have a specific thing that you're anxious about? But believe me, you can. I mean, it happens. It happens to many, many people, billions of people pretty frequently. And there isn't always like something you can put your finger on and say, I am this way because of this especially if a person has a chronic anxiety disorder, there really does not have to be any type of stimuli at all to create this just constant feeling of unease and doom and dread. It's something that can just kind of follow us around um, and it doesn't need a trigger, it doesn't need a stimuli. So as I said in my introduction, each of these types of anxiety will be most effectively managed with a specific set of tools. And that's what I'm gonna walk you through now. Narrative anxiety is most effectively challenged by, as you can probably guess, narrative thought challenges. So if you're familiar with cognitive therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy, you might've heard of this idea of like challenging your thoughts or challenging your cognitive distortions. There are many, many different ways you can do this. I'll give a couple brief examples today, and I have some other content on this as well. But when we're trying to challenge our thoughts, what we're essentially doing is we're taking this idea that we have. Again, going back to the example, I'm going to say something stupid in this job interview, make a fool out of myself and not get offered the job. You're essentially like looking at how well does the evidence you have in your life support that idea? Is that a realistic idea? Is that a plausible idea? Or is that actually a pretty unlikely scenario? So if we are if we have a job interview coming up, you might think about, well, how many job interviews have I had before? Maybe I've had a dozen. I had 12 job interviews in my life. Well, how many have I really screwed up in? Let's say it's one. you know there there was this one time when I did just like really have no idea what to say, didn't handle the interview well, didn't come off well, and could tell before I even walked out the door, I'm not going to get offered this position. This is one of the things our anxiety does is they'll take these rare events and kind of make us believe that they're just super common and that they're inevitable and going to happen all the time. and And they tend to ignore things like statistics, for example if you've had 12 job interviews and only one of them really went bad, you can kind of talk yourself down from that and literally just say that to yourself. Like I've done reasonably well, at least in 11 out of the 12 job interviews that I've had. So the idea that this one's gonna go horribly isn't super well supported by the actual experiences I've had in my real life. is This is me really exaggerating my fears and exaggerating the negative. So here you're really having a dialogue, a conversation with yourself, trying to talk yourself down from this idea that you're really stuck on. Or you might say to yourself, well, in general, I think I have pretty good people skills, or I have a lot of experience in the area that this job is interviewing me for. So the idea that I'm just going to have no idea what to say or say something completely inaccurate really is is very unlikely because I know this subject matter well. Now, again, there's a that's just an example, right? Obviously, I made some things up there and there's a lot of assumptions in that example, but those are the types of tools that you want to use to challenge narrative anxiety. Now, the thing is, I know a lot of therapists who who teach thought challenges like all the time for all anxiety, but what if you have primarily physical anxiety. How are you going to apply a thought challenge to anxiety that doesn't really have a thought behind it? Do you see the problem with that? There's not a thought to challenge. There's not a concrete, definable idea in your mind that you can examine the evidence for. So if you try to use this strategy with other types of anxiety, it's really it, it's not going to do much. It might do literally nothing. You might not even be able to do it because it does not interact with the form your anxiety is taking. But if you're experiencing narrative anxiety, then this is often gonna be a very effective tool for you to use. If you are experiencing visual anxiety, you wanna counteract that with visuals. You're gonna notice a pretty common theme here. We're trying to fight fire with fire, so to speak. You need to meet your anxiety in the form that it is taking. And so you may have heard about visualization activities for anxiety, right? Whether that's visualizing something um, like a safe place, visualizing something good happening. I'm actually not a huge fan of those. I'm just naming some common ones. I actually like to do what's called neutral visualization, meaning that rather than imagining some like fantasy escape world or imagining some best case scenario happening, which might be just as unrealistic as the worst case scenario, just try to visualize like a normal version of whatever your stressor is. Um, if you if you go too far in the positive direction, it can backfire. I actually can give you an example of that. Uh, when I was about 26 years old in my master's program, I took a job um, teaching. uh, taught two sections of introduction to psychology. And I had a lot of anxiety about that. And my anxiety in that particular moment was taking mostly a visual form. I was imagining myself in front of this classroom of, of people. And I was imagining myself just like clamming up, not knowing what to say, saying something stupid, like getting heckled by the students. I mean, you know, catastrophized, right? And I realized that that was unrealistic. And I realized I needed to challenge my anxiety. But I went too far. I, I, I did too positive of a visualization and I, I pictured myself giving some like life changing lecture or lesson and like being plot like getting a standing ovation. This sounds so silly to say out loud, but um, like getting a standing ovation at the end and having a bunch of people come up to me and they're like, I want to be a psych major now. And honestly, when I when I imagined that scenario in my head, I did actually feel a little bit. I'm like, man, that's gonna be awesome. I can't wait. But then I got there. I'm like, "Oh, but I don't know how to do that." <laughs> so it didn't work. Um, so I like neutral visualizations, which is basically picture it being average. If you have to give a presentation or some kind of uh, public speaking engagement, just picture it being like fine, <laughs> like normal. Um, if you're going to fly in an airplane, don't picture yourself winning the lottery on the airplane or like meeting your dream partner. Just picture the airplane taking off, flying, landing, and just being normal. Um, the, the main reason is that those are more plausible when you're, when your brain is projecting a really negative image or movie in your mind, and you try to make it really positive. It's so far, either it's going to reject it or you're going to accept it, but then it's not actually going to play out that way. So try to just use neutral visualization. Try to imagine a very just uneventful, mundane version of the thing that you're going to have to do or the experience you're going to have to have. That will typically calm your visual anxiety without being unrealistic or like putting, putting expectations on yourself that you can't live up to. Again, if you try to use visualization to challenge like narrative anxiety, for example, it's just a mismatch. It's just a mismatch because you're trying to challenge um, like a phrase or, or a narrative idea with an image. And they're just not I mean, imagine. Okay, this is this is actually hilarious. But imagine if you were talking to a therapist. And you were verbalizing narrative the, the, the job interview thing. I have this job interview coming up tomorrow. I'm really nervous about it. I'm really stressing about it. I think I'm going to screw it up. And imagine your therapist just like pulls out a painting of a nature scape <laughs> And they say, just look at this peaceful painting. It's not going to do anything. It's it, It's comical, right? It's a ridiculous idea because it's so obviously not a fit for what that person needs in the moment. But when you try to use visualization activities for non-visual forms of anxiety, that's basically what you're doing. Oh, you have anxiety, look at this pretty picture, you'll feel better. Not really, unless your anxiety is visual, then you probably will. So the third type of anxiety is physical anxiety, and I bet you have figured out the pattern by now, and you probably already know that I'm about to tell you that the best way to challenge physical anxiety is with physical coping tools. Physical anxiety is really more, or at least as much, maybe more about your nervous system, which is the, the bundle of nerves that runs through your body than it is about your brain. So it's really hard to like talk your way out of physical anxiety because it's, it's not originating here. It's actually originating in here, in your body. So we wanna use techniques like deep breathing, progressive muscle relaxation, things that are going to actually switch your nervous system from sympathetic, which is the the fight or flight response, to parasympathetic, which is your rest and digest mode. Deep breathing is a really, really powerful nervous system hack because it's essentially the only direct link between your mind and your body that is consciously controllable. When your nervous system gets more into fight or flight mode, which anxiety absolutely can do for us. And that's where most of the physical symptoms of anxiety come from. It is preparing for danger. And so your body's getting wound up and tight and and ready for some kind of threat to materialize, right? For you to have to literally defend yourself from something or run away from something. And you can't really talk yourself out of that because it's a hardwired instinctive survival response. But one of the, of all the changes, you know, if you think of all the all things that happen in your body when you're really anxious. Uh, again, just to review, there's um, short, uh, like short and deep. Uh, try that again. Rapid shallow breathing, increased heart rate, sweating, shaking. Um, most of these things are not consciously controllable. In fact, the only one that's consciously controllable is breathing. You breathe automatically, but you can consciously change the way you're breathing just by thinking about it. You can't do that with any other nervous system function. You cannot just think about having a lower heart rate and lower it. You cannot just think about re-engaging your digestive system and have it just happen. There are things you can do indirectly to affect those nervous system functions, but the only nervous system function that you have direct conscious control over is your breath. So breath work is an incredibly powerful tool because it's literally using breath to get your body to speak the same language as your brain. When your brain controls your breathing consciously and forces your breathing to become longer and deeper and slower, your brain is sending a message to your body We are not in danger right now. I know you think we are. I know something's got you wound up right now. Something looks bad, but it's not what it looks like. It isn't dangerous. We're okay. And I actually don't need you to be on edge right now. Now, the funny thing is, if you actually say those words to yourself when you're experiencing a physical anxiety response, they won't do anything because your body doesn't speak English. But if you translate those ideas into slow, deep breaths, then your body will relax because you are actually telling it, we're all right. This isn't what it looks like. I also mentioned progressive muscle relaxation. Muscle tension, of course, is another common physical symptom of anxiety. Now, you can't directly, you know, command your muscles to to loosen or to relax. What you can do, though, is you can tighten them or tense them beyond the point they're already at. And what that does is it simulates engagement of a fight or flight response. In other words, it tricks your body into thinking that, yeah, there was something dangerous and we got away from it or defended ourselves from it. And we're okay now because it actually uses the muscle tension that you've built up, which, again, if you're if you're really anxious about giving a speech or something, for example, you probably aren't going to use that muscle tension because unless your speech is like really animated, um, you're probably not going to engage in a fight or flight response. Therefore, even after the speech is over, your body is still going to be really tense and wound up because nothing physically really happened. So just to give you a super brief example of progressive muscle relaxation, you can even just do it with your hands. If you have a lot of tension in your hands, you just clench them even further, like make fists for about like five seconds. And it should feel, you should be able to really feel that, right? And then you let go. And then you do, it's not necessarily a one and done, right? You can do it a few times, clench and relax, clench and relax. And if you do that a few times, what you should notice is that your hands actually feel kind of tired. You actually feel like you've used them for something because you have. Um, and And with that tiredness comes almost like you might even feel it right now. If you did the, along with me, you almost feel like a heaviness. And with that heaviness comes a sense of, maybe relaxation or peace. And you're now starting to counteract that physiological anxiety that you were experiencing before. Now, that was just an example, hands, right? You can do that with literally any body part, just tense and relax. You can do it with your whole body if you want, if you have time. And that can be a really powerful tool to work through your physical anxiety. So that fourth subtype of anxiety I mentioned, this is the trickiest one by far. It's that general anxiety. And it's tricky because it's almost like refusing to take a form right like the other three narrative visual physical it's clearly taking a form you know it's saying i am this right now and you can identify a coping tool that takes that same form and apply it and hopefully like counteract it or defeat it but what do you do when it won't take a form how do you count, how do you fight mist is like basically the question right it's so frustrating there is an answer though sort of The best way, in my opinion, to deal with anxiety that will not take shape, that just is there, but refuses to define itself, is with something that we call skillful distractions. The logic behind skillful distractions is that there is a finite, limited amount of mental activity that you have at any given time. And when you're experiencing general anxiety, most of the unused space in your brain, maybe all the unused mental activity in your brain, is being is generating anxiety, basically. So the less engaged, the less stimulated, the less busy you are, the more anxious you are, because the more unallocated mental activity you have, if you will. So the easiest solution to that is allocate it. Allocate as much of your mental energy as possible to something that is not anxiety provoking. You aren't defeating your anxiety per se in this scenario. You're more like cutting off its supply. It's kind of like a war of attrition, if that makes sense. So let me define skillful distractions because this is a very misunderstood thing. And what a lot of people try to use a skillful distractions are actually not skillful. There are three elements to a skillful distraction. The first is that you want it to be high stimulation. Basically what that means is it has to be something that's actually interesting and engaging to your brain. If you just throw on like some mindless TV show that you're not really that into, for example, or play some game on your phone that you can like do without even looking at it, It's really not very stimulating, and that's not going to be effective because it isn't taking much brain power for you to do that thing. You don't have to be engaged with this activity to follow along with it or to do it, so it just leaves too much empty space in your brain to stay anxious. So you want it to be stimulating. You want it to be something that really pulls you in, something that when you're doing this thing, you don't think about much else because it really clicks with your brain in that way. But the second criteria, and these first two can be tricky because they can almost seem oppositional at first, but they're not. The second is that it has to be low stress. Obviously, if you're already anxious, we don't want you to do something that's high stress. The way I would define low stress in the context of a skillful distraction is something that doesn't have a lot of expectations attached to it. Meaning, however this thing goes, you got to be kind of okay with it. If you need if you need to uh, do this thing at some certain skill level or if there's like financial implications for it, then it's not low stress. um and, and it's it's not always obvious what is and isn't low stress. Here's a cheesy example, but it's one I see all the time is watching sports Watching sports should air quotes be low stress right? you're just chilling on the couch or in a nice chair, watching other people work. I mean, that's basically what watching sports is, right? But I know many people who are big fans of some certain team. And if that team does not perform well, they are very unhappy on that particular day. That then is not a low stress activity. Maybe it seems like it should be, but it's not. If If your team loses, and especially if your team loses like a close game, or if there's some controversy about like the refs or something like that, I'm from Iowa. There's always controversy with Iowa football for some reason. If that's going to like ruin your mood all day long, then it's not low stress. And there's no shame in this. Once upon a time, one of my skillful distractions was playing Madden online. Madden online is not low stress for me because when somebody beats me like 100 to three, I don't feel real good about myself and when that person has voice chat and they are clearly 10 I feel really bad about myself. So I learned a long time ago Madden is not good for me if I need a stress reliever I often actually feel worse after playing it. Um so you know no judgment just just you just have to study yourself basically and and really just be honest with yourself is this low stress for me or not? something that is low stress for me is woodworking. And it's low stress because I, I don't care. Um, I'm not going to sell my little carvings on Etsy because they're they're terrible. I'm not actually good at woodworking. And that's what makes it low stress for me. Um, It's just going to end up being firewood at the end of the day. So like if you're an artist, for example, if you're trying to sell your art, it's probably not low stress because then if you're having a bad day and you mess it up and you're like, oh, no, I'm not going to make any money on this. And now I can't eat tonight. Well, that's That's not low stress. So make sure it's something with low expectations. I know it can be tricky to find things that you're really into and are really engaging, but also you don't care about what happens. That might be a narrow range of activities for you, I know. But I hope you can find at least two or three things in there. The third criteria for a healthy, skillful distraction is novelty. And this, again, can get kind of frustrating because we just said there might only be a few things in that range in the first place. And also, you have to switch them up regularly. Now, that can mean rotating activities or it can even just mean switching things up within that category. So just to give an example, let's say that something that's high stimulation and low stress for you is watching anime. Don't just watch the same show over and over and over again. The reason is I know that there's comfort in that. I know a lot of people like the predictability and the consistency of watching something that they've already seen. And it also makes it lower stress because you don't, you know, if there's like a really dramatic moment, you already know what happens and you're not worried about it. The problem is you already know what happens and therefore you can zone out and still follow along with the storyline. It's very similar to um, if you had the same job for a long time. Every morning when you drive to work, you get to a point where you don't have to think about your drive, right? Where you get in the car, turn on the car, put on some music or podcast. And then as far as your brain is concerned, you appear to just like teleport to your job. And you remember nothing about driving there, but somehow you made it anyway. That's because your brain has mastered the route. You know how to get there without thinking about getting there, and it requires no conscious engagement from you to do it. Therefore, your brain is free to think about other things while you're driving to work, which in theory is a good thing. But again, if that default mode that your brain is in is anxiety, we don't want your brain not thinking about what you're doing, because it's going to fill all that empty space with worry. So try to switch it up. So it just don't watch the same show over and over and over again like you can still watch anime anime can be your thing but just like find some new shows every now and then or even step out of sub genres you know if you're usually into like horror anime watch a light-hearted comedy or something like that and this is true like i'm, I'm just picking anime randomly you know this applies to books um movies music Just switch things up a little bit every now and then, because, you know, if you if you stick with one genre of anything, they're all kind of derivative of one another. Right. And If you read. 40 murder mysteries a year, at some point, you're going to get so good at reading murder mysteries that you're going to know who the killer is in like two chapters and then it's kind of not fun anymore. Right. So. Just think about ways to keep that novelty aspect so that your brain stays engaged, stays stimulated and can't fully automate the activity because then it's going to lose its effectiveness as a skillful distraction for you. So I really hope that the information I presented to you today was helpful. If it was, I hope you'll consider subscribing. I'd love to see you come back and check out more videos. I post two a week, and I'm always open to suggestions or ideas for what content you guys would like to see from me next. I hope you enjoyed this, and I will see you next time. Take care.